Hello and welcome to the next in my series of studies in John's Gospel. I don't know what you would say are your favourite Bible passages. If you could choose a top 10 or a top 20, I, I kind of like doing that with my music. I, I have all kinds of top 10s and 20s. I know that if I was to choose certainly a top 25 favourite Bible passages of mine, today's passage is right in there. It's probably in the top 10. And the reason is that it really, for me, crystallises and clarifies the nature and characteristics of Jesus and therefore the nature and characteristics of God. So this is a delight for me to expound this passage and um, I hope you're going to enjoy it as much as I do. I just love the power of this story. So we're at the end of chapter 7 of John's Gospel. They all went home. So that's all there is to say from John chapter 7. Chapter 8, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. Fantastic. Great. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. That phrase, they made her stand in front of the group, is a very powerful, disturbing, frightening image of this crowd of people, angry and humiliating this woman. Why do they humiliate her? Why do they make her stand there? It's clear from what unfolds that they are using her to make a point. They're using her as part of a greater cause. In their minds, the end has justified the means. I think that's one of the most dangerous beliefs in culture. When we think that the end justifies the means, when we can use a person as collateral, where they can be damaged because the greater good is served, where we treat people as insignificant. In God's economy, the small, the vulnerable, the weak, the oppressed matter more than the cause. Paul says in one of the great passages of the Bible, again, in my top 10 of favourite passages, if I speak in the tongues of angels, if I have all the faith that can move mountains, if I can prophesy and speak God's word, but I have not love, I am nothing. And you want to say to these guys who've brought this woman and humiliated and made her stand there, you can be right in every argument, but if you have not love, you are nothing. I want to say to our political leaders around the world, you may be right, you may be wrong, but if you have not love, you are a clanging gong. The cause does not justify the humiliation and the mistreatment of a woman. So they bring this woman and they make a stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, this is John 8 verse 4, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Well, why did the law command them to stone such women? 
such women and, and, and in fact did it. Well, the interesting thing is we look at the passages that they're probably quoting. Let's take Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man, a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So the first straightforward thing is just by bringing one of those who had committed adultery, they were not keeping the law. There was a rampant sexism going on here. There was a uh, mistreatment of women. And we would want to say, where was the man? If they were really interested in the law, where was the man? But the second question that arises for us is, why did the Old Testament law say that they were to be put to death? Because that feels really harsh and difficult for us in our culture to understand. And we may side with those who say the Old Testament or even the God of the Old Testament is unacceptable. Well, we need to understand that the beginning of the story is very different from the middle or the end. And I want to try and explain this and, and, and help us to feel it. The Old Testament is the beginning of the story. And it outlines at the beginning in the law, it outlines the principles and values in part of heaven, of how God ideally wants it to be. And so if we leave on one side the specifics of being stoned and we just talk about the, the, the idea of death, what this law is saying is that the people of God were to take very seriously the destructiveness of adultery, of the way unfaithfulness and the betrayal of people really, really harmed and hurt others, not just the individuals, but their children as well. And that God is saying, by saying it has to be purged, it has to be removed from Israel, he is saying that it is not to be tolerated in his perfect society. It's not for us to say, okay, adultery is okay, you can carry on with that. But I want to say very clearly, this is only the beginning of the story. And you can't judge a story till you get to the end. So hang with me for the next five or ten minutes and we'll get to the end. But the beginning of the story is this, that unlove, actions that cause hurt and damage, that humiliate, destroy, impede, abuse, uh, disrupt people's lives, are not to be tolerated in God's kingdom and purposes and that the initial consequence of that was death because it was such a, a serious thing to break a commitment and a promise to someone and to uh, betray trust and create insecurity. But hold fire for a minute because this is just the beginning of the story. We read on in verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, what was this trap? How was it that they were trapping him? Well, they wanted him to do one of two things. The first thing was that they wanted him to affirm the law and say, yes, this woman needs to be stoned. Now, the problem for Jesus in affirming the law was that this was contradicting his behaviour and that which had made him popular. He had called and welcomed and accepted tax collectors and previous women who had of ill repute, what the Bible calls sinners. He had become characterised as the friend of sinners. He was known for being someone who seemed to accept sin. Therefore, if he did choose to say, yes, the law of 
the Old Testament is right and this woman is to be stoned, he would be alienating his new followers. Not only would he be alienating his new followers, but if he was to incite a riot and for them to pick up stones and to stone this woman, he would be breaking the Roman law because he was in an occupied country and the law of that country and the whole Roman Empire was that citizens were not to incite murder or death. And therefore he would have been instantly arrested and probably executed by the Roman authorities. So on the one hand, there is a problem if he affirms the Old Testament law. The trap, though, is that if he contradicts the law, if he says, no, uh, Moses was wrong, if he says that the Old Testament law that they built their whole life around was in error, then he would alienate the devout Jews. And he would then give a reason for the authorities, the Jewish authorities, to arrest him and to punish him because he would be committing blasphemy. They held the Torah, the Old Testament law, as as precious as God because they were God's words. And to contradict or to deny would have been blasphemy. So they were using this question as a trap. And then the story is beautifully described. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And and we just need to feel the suspense of this moment. He doesn't say anything. He's just kind of doodling. We don't know what he writes. Uh, That doesn't seem to be important to John in telling us a story. What is important is the delay, the pause, And it says in verse 7, they kept on questioning him. So they keep on talking to him and he's ignoring them. He's just fiddling on the ground. And I just want to feel this tension. What are you doing, Jesus? Answer the question. And clearly he's irritating them. They keep on questioning. And then he says this phrase, which for me is one of the most precious things that Jesus says. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. That's brilliant wisdom as we see. But then he says he stooped down and wrote on the ground again. And you can just feel that uh, there isn't an instant response. There's a sort of silence. They're not questioning him anymore. There's a pause and he doodles on the ground. And then we read these words. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. You imagine the first person. It says the older ones first, and maybe one of the oldest folks there who knew what their life had been like, who knew what their thought life was like, who knew their heart and their their own attitudes. It says they, they went one by one and left. They don't say anything. But they know they can't throw a stone because they are not innocent. And eventually everybody realises that they've not been able to trap Jesus. That in some way he's defeated them. Until only Jesus was left with the woman. And the woman was still standing there. You imagine the fear and the humiliation 
and the unfairness of this situation. Where was the man she was with? Why has she been brought to this humiliation and exposed in front of this crowd? And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Why does he ask that question? I think it's because he wants her to think through the implications of what's happened. He wants her to understand what's going on. She has not been condemned to death because there was nobody worthy of doing that. Because if they were to throw the stones at her, they would have to stone themselves. If they were to declare that she needed to die, they also would need to die. No one, sir, she said. And then, it's great words again. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And this verse is packed with really, really important theology. You see, what Jesus is saying is that now, that moment was not the time for condemnation. It was the time for change. It was not the time for deciding that she was unforgivable. It was the time to encourage her to be different. He wasn't here and passing a sentence and saying, you now will be judged by God. He was saying, you are free now. Go and be different. And this is the middle of the story. And you cannot understand the purposes and nature of God and the heart of Jesus by just looking at the beginning, by just looking at the Old Testament. The Old Testament is insufficient in understanding what God is really about. The Old Testament has told us that sin is damaging and it cannot be tolerated or accepted in God's kingdom. But look at the middle of the story. You see, Jesus delays the judgment. The New Testament makes it very clear. There is a day of judgment to come when Jesus returns. The day of judgment is in the future. Now is not the day of judgment. Now is not the time for passing sentence on people. And so he is delaying the judgment that this woman may or may not deserve. And what he does is transform her by his love, by his acceptance, by his care, by giving her dignity, by accepting her in her predicament and not throwing a stone. When perhaps of all the people, he had the right to throw a stone. He was without sin. He could have said, all of these are gone, but I now condemn you. But he doesn't. He transforms her by her love. He calls her to be different. He says, go and leave your life of sin. He isn't pretending that what she was doing was right. He isn't... uh, glossing over the pain and hurt that adultery causes. He says, that's wrong, but I I give you now the chance to leave it. And again and again in the New Testament, we see that Jesus transforms people by loving them. And he calls for their repentance. And then ultimately in the middle of the story, the end of the middle, if you like, we discover that Jesus dies in place of the sinner, that he becomes the atoning sacrifice. He takes the punishment this woman deserves. He takes the stones, if you were, that she should have had thrown at her and they are thrown at him. Of course, they're nails rather than stones and it's a cross, but it's the same principle of execution for sin. And he takes the place of the sinner 
Not because sin doesn't matter, but actually because sin does matter because it is deeply damaging and serious. But he takes the woman's place and my place and your place. So what are the implications of this story? Firstly, that sin is damaging and destructive and we cannot gloss over that. We cannot pretend that the way we treat others, the way we treat ourselves, when we break promises, when we are greedy or um, sexually exploitive or whatever it is, we can't delude ourselves in saying it doesn't really matter. All of us have been hurt by the sin of others and we know that. All of us have been damaged by things said about us, things done to us, truths or untruths said over us. Neglect or hurt, it is damaging and destructive and God does not gloss over that. There is such a thing in life called sin and it's wrong. But we are not to focus on other people's sins Rather, we're to focus on our own. See, the easy thing is to feel better about our sin by looking around to see who's a worse sinner than us. And this is a huge problem for religious people like you and I, where we can start to feel slightly better about the things we know are wrong in our life because we can look at others and say, well, they're far worse. And we can push others down in order to push ourselves up. And that is completely counter and opposite to what God wants of us. He says, stop looking at the, uh, at the, the speck in other people's eyes when there is a beam in your own. Do not excuse yourself by blaming somebody else. And so we are not to focus on other people's sins. We're not to look around for people who, as a, uh, who we can be the judge and jury of, who we can pass sentence over, who we can condemn, we can comment on social media, we can destroy with our words, we can tell other people how wrong they are. We are not to focus on our sins. It's so delightfully tempting because it stops us dealing with our own. But now is the time for us to turn from our own sin. Not to worry about other people's sin, but to turn from our own. And not to feel that Jesus would reject us. But to hear his voice that now is not the time for condemnation. Sentences are not being passed at this moment. The future is still up for grabs. We can still change our destiny. Now is the time for us to come to Jesus, not in fear, not in expectation of rejection, not because he's going to punish us, but just to receive his mercy and his grace and his love that transforms and his overwhelming acceptance that calls us to be different. And the last implication is that we bring in the sinners rather than push them away. And I must say, I grieve greatly over the state of Western Christianity that seems to push people away who we think are sinners. And that any attempts to welcome sinners is seen as, condone, is, as, seen as joining in or condoning. We're not to push people away. We're not to declare that this sin or that sin or that lifestyle or that orientation is somehow a worse thing than our own stuff. No, we're to welcome everyone and transform them by our love and to call them to repentance, to change. 
But not because we point out their sin, but because we simply bring them into the presence of Jesus. And it is the power of his Holy Spirit that changes. One of the things Kath and I were talking about in our recent questions of life is understanding what God asks of his followers and what God's Spirit does. God's Spirit is the thing that changes hearts and convicts mankind of sin and causes us to feel guilty and ashamed and to fall on our knees and confess our sin. That is all the work of God. It is not the work of human beings. As human beings, we're called quite explicitly in the Bible to forgive and to love and to not to judge and not to condemn, but to build and to strengthen and to nurture and encourage. So let us not be people who push sinners away. Well, let's open the door and welcome them in because we stand side by side as fellow sinners. But I've told you the beginning and I've told you the middle of the story. There's an end to this story that is still to come. You see, Jesus will return as the judge. And the repentant will be saved. And the unrepentant will die again. And so that which was begun in the Old Testament has a point and a meaning because it says, look, if you live a life say of adultery or whatever it is and you do not come to God and you do not say I'm sorry then there's no place in heaven and that grieves God's heart but it has to be that way because we can't repeat the rubbish of this earth in heaven so the beginning has a purpose, the middle has a purpose and the end has a purpose but we need the whole purpose and story of God to understand the heart of God. The heart of God is this, sin is damaging and that grieves God and so it can't be in heaven but he is bending over backwards to call us to renounce it and to receive his love and be transformed and he is willing to take the punishment that we deserve and die in our place. If only we would say, I'm sorry. Questions for reflection as we conclude our study. The first question is this, do we tolerate sin in our own life? Are there things that we compare ourselves to others and say, well, it's not that bad, or we just go along with it? Maybe there are things, times when we ignore our sin by focusing on others. There is real danger. That spiritual pride and a condemnation of particular sections of society is a smokescreen to us dealing with what we need to deal with in our own lives. And maybe you are angry about something in the news. Maybe you are angry about something that you see going on. Can we put it aside and not judge? And just deal with our own lives just sort ourselves out and let God deal with everybody else. What voices of condemnation do we need to ignore to go to Jesus? In other words, what voices are there within our mind, our head that say you can't be loved by Jesus, you can't be accepted, you've gone too far, you've done too much. Maybe, maybe we have committed adultery physically and literally. Many of us will have done so in our hearts and minds. And the voice says you can't be restored and you can't be forgiven and you can't be accepted. And, 
We need to hear the words of Jesus say, neither do I condemn you. Now is not the time for condemnation. We are not at the end. We are in the middle. Now is the time to receive his grace. And the last question, who needs our love and mercy and not our condemnation and judgment? Who is it that we live amongst, know of, have involvement with, who we know they're making terrible mistakes and poor choices. We know their lifestyle is destructive. But they don't need us to throw a stone. And they don't need us to humiliate them. But they do need us to model the grace that Jesus offers. And in his name to seek to transform them by love and mercy. Let's pray together. Jesus, will you help us not to avoid or ignore the things in our life that you want to cleanse and remove, the ways in which we damage or hurt others or ourselves or your image in us. Lord, have mercy. And when we get all het up and focus on others, have mercy. It causes us to look into ourselves rather than others. And so, God, would you help us to be people of grace who transform those around us, who don't um, throw stones, but who do bring transformation. Jesus, set us free to love in your name. And we bring to you those who we want to see transformed and ask that your Holy Spirit would convict them, not our anger. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.